Welcome everyone to the Change Starts Here podcast. Today's guest is someone who has spent her entire education career working on reserve in Canada. And the leadership that uh, experience that she has, as well as the leadership she has to share with us today is unique and is one of a kind to the podcast. And so I'm really excited to dive in. As an introduction to Debbie Michael, I will say, while she's been an outstanding leader uh, in Canada for a number of years, I asked a few folks, and I don't mean to embarrass you, Debbie, what they thought of you as I was getting the chance to talk to you, because I know a number of folks that we have mutual friends that have known you for several years. Uh, Someone said, you are a strong, visionary leader. Uh, You know how to get the best out of people, but most importantly, you know how to love and serve people in a way that makes them feel validated and want to lead for themselves, which I thought was really cool. Um, And one thing that I do really appreciate, and it comes from a person who I trust immensely, she is a person of character who walks the walk, modeling principles-centered leadership and living everywhere she goes. So with that, Debbie, to me, there's a lot of things that we could say about your career. I think that is probably one of the coolest quotes that you could have about a person. So... Thanks for joining us here today. Wow. Just very, very humbled right now. <laughs> Thank you. Of course. Well, uh, as we always start, our first question for our guests is, who are you and what do you love about what you do? Debbie Michael Nitsigosun. Um, my name is Debbie Michael. Uh, in the Cree way, uh, for us, so often it's, it's when somebody tells you, asks you who you are, there is such, um, I guess it comes from lots of lineage and lots of kinship in terms of where we come from. And I always take that question and um, I think about my parents. And so I'm going to answer this question by first saying that my mom uh, is a residential school survivor. And she um, is Cree, and she comes from the James Smith Reserve in Saskatchewan. My father um, came from Germany back in 1958, and he truly thinks of himself as a Canadian, true and true. In fact, I think he thinks himself as First Nations. He's part Indigenous um, because he has really taken the culture and the life and the family that all of that brings. So that's kind of where I come from. Whenever I meet family, they're always saying, who's your mom and who's your dad? And that is a really big part of being First Nations, being Indigenous, um, and truly being Canadian. Um, I am lucky to be a mom of three wonderful sons who um, have kept me on my toes all these years. And I think they've definitely taught me about um, resiliency (laughs) and patience. Um, And I've been a principal for the last uh, 16 years. I started out as a teacher in Muskochees on the Ermanskin Reserve in 1993. So a lot of the, you know, experience and just a lot of the joy and a lot of the friendships and the beautiful people that I've come to meet, um, it's because Muscochese has really opened their hearts and opened their, you know, their schools and their children and everything else to to the experience that I've had here. What I love about what I do, it really comes, it just comes down to the kids. I can't begin to even capture what that means for me I love the kids and it's always been about the kids and I think um working with teachers working with you know principal other principals working with 
the parents, everybody, it's all of that. And when we're all working toward doing the same thing, um, and that's to make lives better for our children so that they have a better chance to, to reaching their dreams and their goals. Um, I just, I think it's, it's the best, the best of both worlds. So for me, it's about the kids. And I know that's, um, I strive really hard to, to work hard to do what's right for children. Again, that's, I could go on to the other quotes that I was given about you. And I would say that's definitely tracks with what other people say about you. <laughs> um, I've had the unique privilege of being able to work closely with our Canadian partners over the last five or six years. Um, and so I have some understanding when you talk about residential schools, but for our listeners who, who don't, or who aren't familiar with it, can you just explain, you know, as I know you could probably spend an entire podcast on this, but let's not try, uh, just what, what are residential schools and so that we can ground the conversation there? You know, I can, I can really only speak from my experience and especially, you know, with my mom and just a lot of my family who, who definitely experienced and lived that firsthand. And it really was a time in um, Canadian history where the government was really um, trying to segregate our First Nations people and um, take them out of their homes, essentially. So if you can imagine um, five and six-year-olds being taken out of their homes, away from their parents. And I get emotional thinking about it just because I think of my mom and so many other other families. Um, but they were taken out of their homes and um, put into a school system where it was run by um, different, um, you know, priests. It was the Catholic, and I think there was some Anglican churches as well that overtook and just over, you know, supervised, I guess, these children. And they were really taken out of their homes. They were no longer allowed to speak their language, to practice their culture. Um, and it was a very, I guess, traumatic time for, for many of these children. So a lot of them lost um, connection with who they were, their self-identity, just their connection with family, um, just really lost that that part of themselves. And so, you know, my, my mom is a really good example of somebody who... Um, is resilient and really took that experience and and made something positive out of it but it's not that certainly isn't the case for everyone so it still is very much real in our country it is still very much something that we're all still trying to process and work through and trying to even just understand what that means for us today and what we can do so working in a you know in a first nations on a reserve in, in this community of Muscochese, it's been just so, um, it's, it's just, it's, it's a lot and it's, it's extra responsibility that we carry to ensure that we are honoring and really taking care of our, of our elders and the words that they say as knowledge keepers and really holding that true and, and, and with, with a lot of pride. So in a nutshell, I probably didn't give it the same amount of, um, I don't know. It, it's just, it's a very difficult topic, but it's one we all must talk about. And we must all, um, I guess, take take time to really understand and know what that means um, for children today, but even for those who have lived through that experience, because it's about understanding. It's about, it's about really, truly trying to, to um, think about what we can do now today. How can I best understand this? How can I help move this forward in a positive way? 
No, I think you did a really good job. Cause like I said, I, I mean, we could do an all day podcast just on uh, that challenge. And I feel like anybody who's listening, who's not familiar with residential schools really should do their research. That's a rabbit hole. I've gone down a million times now. And mm-hmm. it's, I mean, to your point, you just said you teared up. I've not lived it, right? I've had my own privilege here in the States where I've not had to think about that. And it's heartbreaking for me just to fathom, right? And you've got communities that have experienced it. Can you, I don't know if you know the exact date, but what, what about what time frame did they end this practice of residential schools and empower, again, local communities and First Nations communities to uh, educate their own? As far as I know, and I'm just going on my own memory, but I believe it was as late as 1996, the last residential school um, mm. was closed. And um, I know that there's there's just so much of that in, in the media now, too, with everything that's been coming up. But it's when people say, well, it happened so long ago, it actually didn't. <clears throat> and for me, Yes, my mom, you know, she's she's 81 now. And so this this was quite some time back for her. But what what I like to um, remind myself is, is that it still wasn't that long ago because I am still as her daughter. I've been impacted by that. And so when we talk about the kids and we talk about the kids in our schools today, they also have been impacted by this. We don't always see it directly, but there's a lot of indirect ways that we've all been impacted by it. And I know for myself, it's um, it's been a challenge because when we think about self-esteem and when we think about identity and we think about who we are and what grounds us, that's through our through our family and through our culture and through that's what we understand. And when we didn't have that, and for my mom, she she didn't have that. Um, I was raised also kind of floundering and not really always certain with who I was. I, I struggled with that for a long time. The lucky, you know, I was very lucky and blessed that my both my parents were, they worked really hard to establish that, reestablish that for us. But um, that's not always the case. And so as an educator, I think that's the piece that's most critical. And especially why I think the leader in me was just, it came at a time in my career where I think it was as much about me as it was for the kids and for the and for this and for the staff. It really helped me as a person as well. Yeah. So I mean, I, I think before we go too far down, uh, like seven habits and leader of me, I, I kind of want to continue to ground folks and like the unique challenge. So it, it, you know, you you lose identity with these residential schools, and so then you come back. I mean, education's hard enough as it is let alone trying to find, you know, add on top of it, trying to find, uh, helping kids find their own identity. Uh, from that lack of identity, what unique challenges as a teacher and a principal did you see popping up that you knew you had to fix or you were constantly in search of solutions for? I think one of the biggest ones, and you'll see these parallels across all lots of First Nation communities, and that's the attendance of our students. I think, you know, there's a lot of mistrust with education um, in First Nation communities just because of just the, the history of residential schools. There was there was a lot of fear and there's a lot of mistrust um, and for, for very good reason. And so I think that was one of the, the biggest barriers that was really evident early on was that we had to really work hard almost harder <laughs> to to build that trust and to really build that sense of community and and that 
positive culture and climate within the school. We had to really come from a more of a trauma-informed perspective as well, because we knew and we understood that many of our families had experienced all kinds of trauma. And that can, you know, there's a lot of reason behind that as far as how residential schools, I mean, that whole event was traumatic in of a like in itself, right? Yep. So that was one of the bigger barriers is is that the trust, the building of better improving attendance in our school. Um, we were having when I first started, um, attendance was like sixty percent. There were days we wouldn't see kids for months. Um, and we would have to try and reach up to our families. And, and you know, it, it still is a work in progress. Um, I think we're still um, challenged with that. And especially now with the pandemic, that's almost added another layer of, of complexity to, to an already difficult situation. So that was one of them. I think, um, you know, when I talk, when I think about our kids and just them believing in themselves, they really were hesitant um, learners and they were really, um, you know, and not that shy is, is a negative thing because it's not, but they were very, um, hesitant, I guess would be the, the better word to say. And in terms of really knowing who they were and to feel confident and to really believe that they had this incredible genius within them. Um, they, that was another thing that was really evident. There was also at that time, um, there was a lot of deflecting and not, um, not just with children. It was with our, with adults in our building. It was with our parents. It was just, it was this culture of just not wanting to always take responsibility because that meant we had to be vulnerable and we had to be honest. And that's really hard when, when there's no trust and when, or there's little trust. And when there's a lot of fear, I think it was all stemmed from, this fear of, of um, just of what could be and just not knowing. So it took a long time in the beginning to start establishing those relationships to establish that sense of connection and really getting, you know, staff and um, parents, all of us really working together. Uh, those are just some of the barriers I can think of off the top of my head, but yeah. um, those were probably the big ones. Well, you think, I mean, that, that trust issue is everything, right? So they don't trust the system to actually take care of their kids or build communities. So that's, you don't have that, you know, even when folks don't like school, they're like, all right, I know this is probably the best thing for my kids. I guess I'll send them. Uh, if you don't even have that baseline, it's a really, really tough fight. So a second ago, or just a minute ago, you mentioned the leader and me process. How did you stumble across the leader and me process? Well, I had been principal for a number of years and already we were really struggling, I think, with, um, like I mentioned before, attendance was one. But we were also really noticing within the school community, there was a lot of um, blaming and not taking responsibility. And we were already seeing a lot of behaviors that were coming in the office. And that was where I was spending a good part of my time. And um, how I came to to learn about the leader and he was actually my son. He's 18 now, but this, at this time he was in grade two and he went to, and it was, I think, one of the first lighthouse schools, which was Minchow Elementary in Edmonton. And he had, um, he was coming home and, um, he had some learning challenges as well. And he, he really had a hard time focusing and, and sitting down to do, you know, to do his work. And I started to notice a shift in him about a year after he started at that school. 
And he was coming home and telling me things like, I have to put first things first, mom. And he'd be the first one sitting at the kitchen table doing his homework. And I was like, what is going, this is not my child. Like what happened to Colby? Cause this is not who he is. And he was like, do it. He was in grade two and I'd be making supper. And there he was doing first, putting first things first. I have to work before I play. And then, you know, I can distinctly remember one morning I was trying to help him. He had these new boots, these new winter boots, and he couldn't get them on. And, and he was like um, asking me to help him. And I was frustrated because I was trying to get out the door. Try, and I obviously wasn't putting first things first and everything was in a, in a mess. And I was just like trying to force those boots on. And he says to me, Mom, you really need to carry your weather. Um, like we need to carry our weather right now. It's really, it's going to be okay. And he's like talking me down from this elevated state. And I, so anyways, from there, that's when I started talking with his teachers and they started telling me about this. And I thought, this is something my staff, I think this is what we need to do because it's a common language. It's just something that we can bring in that's, um, I think going to help our kids. So actually his grade two teacher and his grade four teacher at the time, I asked their principal um, at the time, I think it was Mrs. Davidson, if, if they could come and just talk to my staff. And so she agreed and they came and they just shared their story and what it did for their students. And so after they left that day, I said to my staff, I am not about to bring anything because I know what it's like to add more to a teacher's plate. I'm very cognizant about ensuring that, you know, you're managing and balancing that. And I said, it's really important that if we're going to do this, you guys are all in. Like, I need to know. I'm not going to bring this in if it's going to be. But if you really believe in this and you think this is good for our kids, I'm all in. And so they were there. They, it was no question. Like every single hand in that staff room that day um, was up in the air. And then they and then they regretted it. They're like, oh, my gosh, what did we just get ourselves into? What does this mean? Oh, gosh, Debbie, there's going to be more work. What are we doing? And then at that time, the Alberta government actually was doing a whole, we got a $65,000 grant to really help us with getting that training mm. and all kinds of stuff underway. Um, you know, and at that time, it was, it was, um, it was just the perfect timing. So as we started getting in the training and we, we actually did a lot more beyond that, but um, that was the initial start. Yeah. That's great. So, uh, one of the questions I just got sent to me is, you know, I, I've done some research and this, obviously this person has as well, knows that, you know, your community, you've got principles of, uh, you know, the Cree people, right? Was there was there concern about how these uh, seven habits and the philosophy leader me would align with uh, the Cree people and the identity that you have and the principles that you have? Absolutely. I think that was, um, and I knew, <clears throat> I knew already because it's, you know, the thought was that this is a Western kind of, you know, um, strategy or a, it's more of a Western type thinking. And, um, and I understood that and I knew for well that that would have been one of the challenges and it was. And it, and it took, you know, it took time and it took really reaching out to our elders and to, our community members and people who really understood, you know, the Cree values and what that meant for us. Um, and as we had more conversation and we had a lot of meetings actually, and a lot of just um, round tables about what the challenges are and what does this mean for us and what is this going to look like? 
And then it turned into this beautiful um, process of us really working together and using a lot of those universal strategy or universal, I guess, principles. And what does that mean for us as Cree people, as as Nahiawayan? What does that mean? And um, that's when we started to see there's so many parallels and so many overlaps. And it was actually just a beautiful marriage of what we're already doing. And it really then became evident that we were not, in fact, compromising who we were as Cree people or Cree ways or Cree, you know, the, the whole idea of, of what those values mean for us. It, it really wasn't compromising. it. If anything, it was strengthening it. That was the foundation. And I always made that very clear as well to our to our staff and to our families, um, to to the community, everybody that. It's always got to be about um, who we are as Cree people. That is the foundation. The seven habits and, and all those principles that kind of come in, they just really, they just fit like a perfect puzzle, actually. And there were so many parallels. And as we started to unfold and do more of this work, it became really evident that it was um, it was just so much easier than we ever thought. Is it? And at that point, actually, sorry, the, the a lot of our our Cree staff, like our Cree um, teachers began to also see that. And then it was exciting because they became excited and they started to really build on what was already something really great. And they just even made it more of our own. And, um, you know, there was a number of them that, uh, you know, I think back to, to the conversations we had and they were hard at times and I didn't always have the answers. And uh, I think, you know, that was something I had to <laughs> sometimes really practice that habit number five and just really listening to understand because that was that was probably one of the more critical pieces to this really um, going in the way that it did. Yeah, I think uh, would you say it sounds like you you allowed people the freedom and space to kind of at least your staff to come into this in their own way at their own time versus saying we are doing this, get on board uh, or we want to do this. How can we make it to where it fits your vision as well? How, how did you approach that? Cause that's, uh, that's the toughest part about being a leader in my eyes of like having this excitement and vision and like you see it, but like you got to have people ready to run with you. How did you, how did you finagle that with them? It's a lot of listening and um, validating, really trying to understand where concerns were, where they were really struggling with it. And, you know, it's balancing that. Like, yes, at some point as a leader, too, we had to, to make those decisions. And, you know, for me, that, that became the decision that this was the, the vision that I had. This is where we were going. And I think what, what I did, and I think um, I did this a lot, was I was always going back to the why. I was always going back and communicating to the parents, to the students, to the teachers, um, to my admin team about why we were doing this. Because I knew and I know for myself that when it starts here and it, it it's inside out. And I mean, if, if we if we come from here all the time, um, it's really easy to talk ourselves out of something. But if we're truly coming from this place of that authentic and that open and that vulnerable space, you know, I think that people get on board. And when they see you in a position also who maybe doesn't always have the answers, but I'm willing to learn alongside of you, we're going to figure this out together. I think that was, um, 
you know, really, I think I hope that it was very reassuring and it validated, I think, the work that my staff um, had to do because it was a lot of work. There was no doubt about it. But I think we were all willing and ready to do that work because we knew and we already saw the benefits. Um, but finding that balance, I mean, in, in leadership, I think that's always the question. Like, how do how much of that um, do we do? And then at what point do we just make a decision? And this is the way it is. And I think I I um, I don't know that I ever perfected that. I don't think that I ever did. I don't know that I ever will. But there really is a balance about really hearing, you know, the group to, you know that you're leading and working with and working alongside of them. But you're also not afraid to make those hard decisions. And you're you're also very, um, I guess, sure in the decisions you make and and stand by them. I guess you're not waffling all the time. You have to be, you know, almost um, just very clear in terms of what your vision is and and, and you're persistent. Um, you're relentless. I know. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard the Brad Bird from Pixar. He's that um, a director, and he talks. He talks a lot about um, relentless um, restlessness. Um, I think that's something that I truly tried to. Um, I know that's kind of where I came from. It was because I just I saw it so clearly in my head, and it's something I wanted so desperately for our students to see them feel successful and feel good about themselves. That. I was relentless um, with this with this vision and 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 almost restless. So to the point where I was just constantly wanting to do better. I was, it was like this urge to always make things better, always to to take it to the next level. Oh, you know. And I think that did um, rub, rub off on our staff too, because now that I'm outside of the school and looking in, I definitely see that with our staff that are still there. Yeah. That's awesome. What you were talking about, the benefits or uh, uh, results that you saw early on that kind of helped stoke the flames of the fire. What were the earliest uh, results um, or impact that you and your staff were seeing that were giving you the excitement, motivation to keep doing the hard work uh, that you were talking about? Initially, what one of the first things I, I noticed is was with staff and how they started to um, just work with one another and how, how it became such a, just a more, um, I don't know, like people were more open and more vulnerable and more able to get through some of those hard things together. And we were, um, there was no more of this blaming. We were each all taking responsibility and really looking, um, from the inside out. And really, you know, for me, that was, that was my, I think the biggest gift for me was, the work does start from within. And um, when we got the staff really starting to think about that and process and reflect on that, what that meant for them, they started even to see how it, how it changed their lives. So that was the first initial kind of change was just within the, the staff culture, the climate, and just how we worked together and how we treated one another. Um, and it was it was then that we started to see, of course, the, the benefits with students. And I think in the early, I think I almost fell out of my chair the first time when a child said, like, just was very forthwell, Miss Michael, I, I made a huge mistake. I messed up. This is what I did. And like, just so forthright. And I was just like, really? Is this, is this happening? And 
I think I have some solutions to this problem. Like when they started talking and changing the way they handled conflict and the way they handled, you know, disagreements with one another, that was a huge, a huge shift for us. So you have you have the perspective of time as you look back at the impact on we'll, we'll talk about system wide in a second, but on that on your school community that you're the, the leader in, well, what what lasting impacts have you noticed even still today? It's um, gosh, I'm just so proud of the staff. Um, Oh, and I just, uh, being on the, like now looking in, I see how this work has sustained itself. And that was something really important for me that when I left, I needed to know that whatever work they did, that they still continue to do it. And, and they have. And um, I couldn't be more proud because you see, as you walk into that school, many years ago, it, it was always, um, People would say to me, you just get this feeling when you walk into your school. It's just you feel good. You feel welcomed. You feel loved. And you just get this sense. And um, I was I was always kind of curious of how I would feel walking in now, not being the principal of that school. And, and yeah, it still feels the same. It still feels that same sense of love and that comfort and welcoming, um, which which really is is. Um, you know, attributed to the to the staff and and to the principal and to her admin team now. So very grateful to the staff. They have continued. I think once it's you know once you've done that work from within, it's it's never ending. You're a lifelong learner, and I think the staff at Ermanskin definitely understand that. I think they live that, um, and it's just I'm, I just am so proud of them. I was I was told uh, so one of the things that. Uh... When I asked about your leadership, uh, vision and visionary is something that continue to come up. And so uh, was there a particular vision that you guys cast years ago that you think is part of the catalyst for saying today? I love where you're at. It's always about the people. So you're honoring the current leadership and the current staff. Um, but was is there like a vision statement you guys came up with at the beginning of this or revisit that you think was a catalyst for keeping that sustained impact? It's always about the kids. Um, I think that was probably one of the first things I ever said to to my staff as a as a first early print like as a first year principal. Um, and the staff will, you know, um, say that time and time again. It's always about doing what's best for kids. And I think no matter what we do. Um, whatever decisions I had to make as a leader, and some of them were hard, and staff didn't always understand um, the implications or the why behind some of those decisions, but they had to know and trust in the decisions I did make were always to do what was best for kids. Mm. And it didn't mean what was best for teachers all the time. It's it sometimes making decisions that are best for kids, in fact, are almost harder for teachers at times. And and knowing knowing that, I think, and that's what carried us through um, through all the years of you know ups and downs of, that we experienced. So I was told for years uh, that you had been recruited to leave your school to go work in the district office to be a system principal of sorts, uh, and you fought that for a long time. What? 
What was it? How'd you know when it was the right time? Because you, I knew from what everybody has said about you is like, again, you walked the walk, so you wanted to see it through. How did you know when it was the right time to transition to your, your new role? Well, you know, within our district office, I mean, the, the people that work, uh, that I work with now, I mean, they had incredible vision themselves. I think there was always, you know, our superintendent has always led mass in, in a way that he too. And I think, you know, I, I, I give a lot of thanks to him because he's really helped mentor me, um, Brian Wildcat, but it's, it's about again, doing what was best for kids. And I think at all of, while all this was happening, um, we were also going through an amalgamation within the four reserves here in Muskogee's to amalgamate into one school division, which is now known as MESC. And I think they saw, they knew themselves as well that there was a need for this type of a role. It just wasn't the time yet. Even for them, they were not ready for it because there was still so many moving parts. There was a lot of things um, that had to settle and they had to sort through to to making the school division, you know, um, to roll it out. And so the time came when, you know, um, Tracy, our associate superintendent, approached me and said, this is the time. And, and it was hard. Like I knew at that time I was ready for change. And I can't tell you how conflicted I was by that just because I had such a, a loyalty to my school and to, to the staff there. And of course I grew to love them like they are family. But I also knew we had, there were so many great leaders in that school and we had to give them opportunity and we, we had to make room for other leaders to grow and to learn. And so for me moving out, it was just, it was just the right time. I think, um, and then leaving Doris to lead that school, she already had a wealth of experience and knowledge to carry things through. So I think it was just a, it was the timing was just right. Um, I can't say that I, you know, it was hard to leave, but looking back now and, and especially where I am now, um, I just, I'm excited to be able to, to support other leaders and to help them in their journey. I mean, that's exciting too. So. Well, one thing I find interesting about uh, your your district is, you know, I've talked to a lot of superintendents across North America, and you know, they're, they talk about the challenge of bringing different communities together. Not one of those districts have I seen a vision statement or something that says along the lines of four nations, eleven schools, one vision. So when you just say something like four nations, that that's a lot of identity there. How do you guys take the step of, again, I know it's really personal to you and your community, but honoring the traditions and vision of four separate nations while building a cohesive vision and community? I think, you know, and I, I, I know that when they started this work, this, this wasn't just, you know, this has been a long time in the making. It's been a lot of conversations that have led up to to this becoming a reality. And I think it was the vision of, of Brian Wildcat. And uh, at the time when he really, he knew and saw the benefits of that. I think um, there's so much that what we're grounded by, it, it, it does come back to the Cree values and who we are as Cree people. That really is, um, I guess, the foundation once again, and really turning to our elders um, and asking them and, 
and turning to them for for that guidance because I think that really has helped shape, I guess, the way we, in which we do things and we continue to do things. Um, we are not. Um, it's it's always about trying to to do things together and to do with. Um, and as we as we start to build, I think what's potentially just an amazing opportunity for a school division um, like MESC to create such equity um, of services, equity of, of learning experiences, of resources across all all schools, because that wasn't always the case. And so now we're in a position where um, all of our classrooms, you know, will have opportunity to to be great. And there already is. I mean, we see pockets of greatness throughout our whole organization in every single school. I've been so blessed to, to be um, witness to, to a lot of great things happening already. You know, and when I work with some of our principals and um, it just it really fills me up and it excites me because I see their excitement and just their vision. And um, it's, yeah, it's, it's an amazing thing. So when you think about uh, highly effective leaders, especially at the school building level or district level, what are the most important traits that you think those leaders need to have? Again, it, it, it goes back to inside out and it's about really taking that time to reflect. I think you have to be good at, at just reflecting on your own practice each and every day. Um, taking time to really understand your own biases, your own triggers, if you will, um, really knowing yourself in that regard. Um, and then you uh, also need to, I think it's essential that you have the ability to really connect and, and create those lasting relationships with, with those you work with. I think you have to be able to build that sense of trust, right? And, and again, walk you know, I you you got to do what you say you're going to do, you know, and and you got to really walk the talk. And so, um, for me, those are some essential pieces. But I think the one thing that I I had to practice in the beginning, and I think I had to really learn, and then it turned out to be one of the greatest, um, I guess, strengths that I had was the ability to listen. And when I talk about listening, it's like that active listening, like really being present. Whoever came through my door, you know, and sat down and needed to debrief or needed to ask a question or needed whatever they needed, I needed to listen. And it didn't matter what was happening on my laptop. It didn't matter what was happening outside my door, that that person who I was with, I was with that person in that moment and just being present. And I think that's actually turned out to be one of the, um, I guess, one of the strengths and, and has really helped me. Um, understand as well just the complexities of running a school and knowing you know all the ups and downs and all the things that can can happen in a given day yeah the power of listening you know it's uh says easy does hard right i mean so so many things that get in the way of that um one of the things we're asking uh all of our guests this year are about their own specific disciplines and habits. Are there any particular disciplines or daily or weekly habits that you have that you think help make you a better leader? Yeah, when I think about that, 
I really do think, of course, um, that reflection piece has been really big for me, has always been. I think it's really helped me inform my practice and how I do things. So I do take time every week to really sit down and just capture my thoughts and, and re go back to my goals, um, setting my own goals. I set personal goals. I set professional goals. And I really do try to um, keep those in the forefront of, of the work that I do because um, that's really what guides, you know, where I'm heading. And I think without that, I'd be um, lost. And I do find when I do find myself kind of floundering and overwhelmed, um, it's because that piece maybe I haven't haven't gone back to. So yes, the reflection and just revisiting my goals and taking time to really like what is my why and really knowing that and, and it changes and I've learned that it's evolved over the years. Um, I really do try to come to a place where um, I'm never I never want to forget that. I never want to compromise that. So it's important for me. So we know that uh, the best leaders generally are strong readers. Um, and so when you think about either things you read on a daily basis or authors you really like to read or books that have been really influential in your life, what what are those for you? Just off the top of your head. Oh, I really, I've, I've read a lot of Todd Whitaker actually in his leadership um, I always go back to some of the things he said he has said. So that's something I like to to go back to. Um, I have really been starting to um, take more um, time to read through just regular articles that come my way. I, I love um, listening to podcasts, of course, um, with leaders. And I think about um Oh, I'm just trying to think of the one that I was just listening to. Um, but there's there's a number of them. I I have to say, though, for, for me, the reading piece has been more challenging as um, I've started to take more of a liking to podcasts and, <laughs> and the audibles. But uh, um, so I will. That is a disclaimer. But I am really still trying to read. But. I find that there's so many good leadership podcasts to listen to as well. Yeah, I mean, I know that your favorite has to be Change Starts Here. But outside of that, uh, I mean, podcasts mm -hmm. are a great question. What, uh, I don't know if you can think of any of like your favorite podcaster right now or one that you definitely hit subscribe to because it, it really resonates with you. You know, the podcast that, um, aside from all the, um, well, never mind. I was going to say, aside from the crime, I love like true crime, but um, I do like the, oh, Maxwell. Um, yeah. Yeah, Maxwell. The, the podcast, yeah, that one I listened to on occasion. I have started listening to this one. Um, <laughs> and I do do that. I'm not, that was just a joke. I, I like the, <laughs> taking notes on who you have, anyways. Yeah. Um, I'd have to put, I'm, I would go on my phone, but um, yeah. There's, I'm trying to think. There's a few for sure. Yeah. Well, uh, again, we, that's why we ask you up the top of your head as best as possible so we can just see what pops up. Uh, one last question that we have is that music is a universal language for different people. And so I'm just curious what type of music do you listen to? If you have a playlist, what type of music is on your playlist, a particular band, songs, genres, whatever? 
Um, country for sure is probably my go-to. I love um, all kinds of country music. Um, my, of course, having three sons, I'm also exposed to all kinds of other music. Um, <laughs> Billy Ocean is something that I've been actually listening to. My son has got me into some of his his um, tracks, so that's been something new for me. Yeah. Um, and of course, the, all the old stuff too, right? Like there's there's lots of good stuff from. From the 80s, I grew up in the 80s, I was, you know, 80s and 90s, so all that stuff is really good too. Yeah, I, I keep finding, I mean, everyone who we ask this question of seems to have a pretty eclectic uh, taste in music, which is awesome, because it, it seems to be that, you know, hopefully over time, this is not a scientific thought, it's just more of, it's interesting, some of our, the folks that we're blessed to have on the show are really thoughtful people and really value others and they're constantly listening. So it makes sense that their music taste seems to be pretty eclectic as well. Um, before we leave, I know it's we're, we're at the time. Uh, I ask every guest just to share a bit of advice as you think about leaders, you know, Change Starts Here is a podcast about the messiness of life and that to, to become what we want to become, we're going to have to go through some false starts and some failures and challenges. And so What's your best advice for, for leaders right now that's on your heart? I think um, really just putting one foot in front of the other and just coming from that place of um, vulnerability at times, which, which can be really scary and it takes a lot of courage. But I think without that, you are not able then to be really honest about what those challenges are and about what what things maybe need to be um, refined as you go through this process. I also think it's really important that don't underestimate the power of relationships because that is the key, I think, to everything that we do. <clears throat> everything that we're trying to achieve, it can't be done without um, having those strong connections with the people who are on your team and who are walking through this journey with you, beside you. Um, so it's, I think that's, that's instrumental. Uh, Debbie, uh, thank you for having the courage to be the type of leader that you are who walks the talk. Um, thank you for having the courage to stay with the school so long when you're being recruited out. I know that you can serve in many different ways, but the impact that you made in your original school is uh, life-changing. And I know the impact you're making on a daily basis with all of your schools is life-changing. Um, no, I know you're probably incredibly busy. So thank you for joining us. For our listeners, thank you for making time to be here live with us. For those of you who are listening to the podcast, thank you for listening whenever and wherever you're listening. Please uh, make sure if you haven't already, hit the subscribe button and I will make a shameless plug to also uh, rate us five stars. Uh, one of my favorite podcasts always says, if you don't go click five stars, I'm going to have to assume you're a hater. And uh, it's not really language I use often, but it makes me smile every time he says it. So we could use your support. Please subscribe uh, and please click five stars. Debbie, this was awesome. Thank you so much for your time and thank you for your heart. Thanks, Dustin. It was a pleasure. Please support us by subscribing to our YouTube channel, uh, podcast on Apple or Spotify and help us celebrate the beautiful, messy work of shaping human potential.